It's Friday. We're live. You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. What a joy to be with you, Michael Brown here. Thanks so much for being part of the broadcast. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Yeah, I, I got the idea from Rush Limbaugh, actually, when we started our daily broadcast. And I was thinking about themes and do we do different things on different days. And the one thing we started was, yeah, Fridays, call in on any subject. And I got that from Rush Limbaugh's Open Line Friday. That's where I got the idea from. Anyway, great to have you on the air today. Monday's show, I'm going to really get in-depth about the calls to remove the president and the impeachment hearings and Christian controversy over that. But for now, go to my website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, or stream.org, and read my response to Mark Galley from Christianity Today calling for President Trump's removal It is not a partisan political response. I did my best to write a kingdom response. So read it, share it with others. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. We start in Arlington, Texas with Chris. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. You bet. Um, Yeah, uh, I have a question in regards to um, the recent Kanye West uh, um, conversion his mm-hmm. conversion over to Christianity. Um, my question actually uh, is in regards to uh, um, Kim Kardashian's comments on um, the view that she had when all of this first came out. So um, she actually made some statements saying that um, she said she has a sister that um, struggles with meeting mediums, but then she went on to say that her that Kim herself, all, she said that she's had an amazing experience uh, just staying connected, um, you know, she's had an amazing experience uh, meeting with the mediums and just have, just staying connected. And uh, then she went on to talk about her father who passed away. And before he passed away, he had uh, he tried to get her to read a book called Embraced by the Light, which, mm-hmm. um, according to Equip.org, Christian Research Institute, there is a Mormon and New Age doctrine promoted in the book. So my question to you is, although Kanye and Kim are new believers, should Kim uh, be advertising or speaking highly of a book that could possibly be promoting New Age thought? And what does her comment about having an amazing experience meeting with mediums say about her being a new believer, and how can the Church as a whole help them with understanding? Yep, thank you for for asking. Number one, I have no clue if Kim Kardashian has really come to know the Lord. I know she— went through a recent baptismal ceremony, uh, I think with some other family members. But it seems to me that the biggest influence right now is his conversion. In other words, he's not comfortable with her dressing certain ways, and he used to spur her on to dress those ways. Now he's not comfortable with it. He doesn't want their their daughter wearing makeup, and obviously would have been totally into that before. Uh, she's watching TV at night. He's reading his Bible. I mean, that's what they're saying. Uh, And now she's even saying, well, you know, she's at the White House and dealing with prison reform issues, and she's thinking 
if I post a picture in a thong bikini one day and I'm at the White House the next, how does that look? So it looks like there's some stirring of her own conscience, but I have no idea if she's really met the Lord, if she understands the gospel at all. So from everything I can see, Kanye's had a genuine conversion experience, recognized the weight of sin, the ugliness of sin, and and is seeking to live a, a new life in the Lord and get the gospel out, and God's using him. So the key thing for him is to keep praying that he'll be surrounded by godly leaders, by people who are not trying to use him or use his fame or use his money, but just want to pour into him and help him grow in the Lord, and that the Lord will keep him from the wrong associations, and to pray for Kim to really come to know the Lord. So what she's saying about mediums, that book, that wouldn't surprise me at all, because I don't, I don't even know if she's in the Lord, a new believer in the least. That, to me, is just a worldly person talking about worldly spirituality from a worldly perspective, and is further proof that if she does know the Lord, boy, is she absolutely brand new. <laughs> Excuse me. And some of us, when we were brand new, we did some pretty stupid things and said some stu- stupid things. We just weren't on national TV doing it. But, yeah, I would pray God really bring Kim Kardashian to yourself, really bring her into a true life-changing encounter with Jesus. And you know that that will happen when she starts talking shamefully about her past and embarrassed about it and the example that she set and the uh, seductive example that she set, but how she's received forgiveness and new life, as Kanye seems to be speaking. So thank you for the call, and and let's pray. They're, They're influential people. Let's pray that they'll be used for God's purposes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go over to Vietnam. Uh, Daniel, welcome to the line of fire. Where exactly in Vietnam are you? Uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Okay. Well, thank you for calling, sir. Um, yeah, so first I just want to say that um, uh, it's, it's an honor to talk to you, and um, I kind of uh, got introduced to you because I used to be really in the into the hyper-grace stuff, and I, I used to always read Paul Ev- Paul Ellis's uh, reactions to you, and um, and I had this impression of you that you were like legalistic and harsh, and then I started listening to your stuff, and I found out like this guy's really fair-minded and and uh, and and kind, and and uh, so I I really like your stuff, and I've I've kind of moved away from that theology a bit, um, but I guess I still struggle a bit with the whole issue of. Um, I guess un- unconfessed sins and um, yeah. mm-hmm. like if unconfessed sins put you out of fellowship with God and I guess the the way that I've the reason I've always struggled with that is because I realized my own capacity to have blind spots my own capacity yes, to, to to self-justify or else to be too hard on myself and so sometimes I end up in these situations where it's like um, I'm not like I think maybe I sinned, but I'm not sure. It you know it's it's like uh, anyway, like, like for example, you know I see an attractive woman, and then uh, and then you know you go through in your mind like, did I lust after her? Was I just attracted to her in a normal way uh, that God designed me to be attracted to her, and that kind of thing? And then it's like even if I confess it, okay, God, I, I lusted, forgive me, but then I'm not really 
convinced of it in my heart, then it doesn't feel like an honest confession. So I just right. sort of, you know, I kind of feel like a hamster on a hamster wheel. Um, so, yeah, and, and, uh, and Daniel, wondered, that's like, why, yeah, that's why uh, the hypergrace message often appeals to people of sensitive conscience, because you love the truth and you want to honor the Lord and your conscience is sensitive. And this just gives you such a blanket of grace and such an assurance of forgiveness that sometimes people can go from, from one extreme to the other. But here's the key thing, Daniel. Let's, let's just think this through for a moment, because God is not a legalist, right? And God is certainly not looking at it like this. So would you say that fellowship with God, we're talking about real fellowship with the Lord, that that has a quality to it. It's not just a theological concept, but there's a friendship, there is a relationship, there's a communion with the Lord. Would you agree that that's part of our fellowship with Him? I think so. I mean, to be honest, I feel like I'm in a pretty broken place spiritually. I, I, it's, I can't give you my whole life story right now. Um, so, I mean, I... I, I well, would I you say that that's the... Yeah, all right. So yeah, these but, are but there, there's some deeper agree. things. Okay, there's would... some deeper things that I'd love to see you get assurance and help. So it's good even to have this conversation. But here's my point. If I'm to have fellowship with God, Okay, let's just say you and I are talking, we're having some fellowship, we, we meet in an airport, and we're, oh man, how'd you get, oh great, and we're just fellowshipping around the Lord, right? And then I get a phone call from someone else, and I'm talking to that person for 10 minutes, it broke our fellowship, right? So if I am consciously sinning, willfully sinning, and not acknowledging that before the Lord, and not turning from it, that's going to affect our fellowship doesn't mean I'm not saved. I'm not going to go to hell for that, for, for, for that moment. But it means that I've consciously broken fellowship. So in the course of a day, it's very, very rare that I confess sin to God because it's, it's only when I've consciously done something that I know violates his will, that, that I willfully and consciously did something that I know violates his will, or I ignorantly did something that I then realized violates his will, that my immediate response is, Father, I'm sorry, wash me, cleanse me. In other words, it's a defiling thing. And then I immediately go right back into fellowship because most of the things that we do wrong, Daniel, we don't even know about. In other words, did I pray adequately? Did I pray with adequate devotion? Did I spend quality time with with the Lord in the Word? Did I really love my neighbor as myself? Did I have a deep enough burden for that law? No, I mean, we're always falling short all the time. And 1 John 1, 7 says that as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's continual in the Greek. In other words, in an ongoing way, as I walk with the Lord, he's cleansing and washing me of things I don't even know about. But when I'm aware of something, just like if I did something and it was offensive to Nancy, oh, honey, I am so sorry. I can't believe I was insensitive. Forgive me. We're still married. We're still husband and wife. But if I don't address that thing, there's, there's going to be like a wedge between us. So look at it that way, Daniel. If you know that something has created a wedge in your relationship with God, let's say someone sinned against you and you, and you refuse to forgive them and you keep hardening your heart, that's going to affect your fellowship with the Lord. You say, Lord, forgive me for hardening my heart. Lord, I forgive them. Then the fellowship is renewed. Look at it more in a relational way than a theoretical way. And, and if, if you say, okay, did I lust at that woman or not? 
rather than think about that, just say, Lord, I love you. Help my, my thoughts to be pure and godly and beautiful. And in other words, just pray positive things over yourself rather than trying to analyze. So can I just pray with you, Daniel? We've got a break coming up, but, but I, can I just pray for you? Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Father, I pray for Daniel, and we, we join together. Give him a deep assurance of faith because of what Jesus did, not because of who he is or what he does or how hard he tries, but because of who you are and what you've done. May he receive a baptism of joy today that you love him, that you're with him, that you're for him, that you're not against him. And in that, may he lead an overcoming life. Pour out true grace on your son today, Father, in Jesus' name. Bless you, Daniel. God's grace is there for you. True grace. True grace. God of light, hear our cry. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome to The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. You've got questions, we've got answers. Let's go to Isaac in Gainesville, Florida. Welcome to The Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, it's a pleasure to speak with you again. Um, hey, I man. have two questions, but I'll just, hey. Um, I have two questions, but I'll just start with the first one. If you don't have time, that's totally fine. Um, so I'm familiar with the Jewish tradition that speaks of the world existing for 6,000 years. You mentioned it in your little uh, Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah book. Yep. Um, 2,000 years of desolation from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years of Torah from Abraham to the Messiah, and 2,000 years of the Messiah. Would I be wrong in saying that it seems the Apostle John in Revelation 20 believes this to be the case, for he sees the Messiah reigning for a thousand years, which would correspond to the seventh millennium, or a sort of like a Sabbath millennium. If that is the case, do you agree with the tradition fully, in that the Messiah must come by the year 6,000? Right. So, uh, number one, that tradition, which is a fa- <laughs> excuse me, a fascinating one, and well-known well as an early Tanaitic tradition, uh, is just mm-hmm. one of many that are given. Another one is that you have 6,000 years of the world and then a thousandth year millennium, right? So that that would be a different one. So there's ultimately 7,000 years of history there, right? The one is two, two, and two for 6,000 total. Another is 6,000. And then the 7,000th is is the millennium. That's the the Sabbath one. So I would look at that as a different one. You know, Revelation 20, speaking of a thousand-year millennial kingdom, would would be more in harmony with the one that says 6,000 years of world history and then the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. But uh, does the Messiah have to come within the Jewish calendar of 6,000, so we have 200-plus years left for maximum? No, not necessarily. In other words, if the Messiah came before then, does that throw off things? And can we be sure that that date is an exact right date? So to me, it's just another interesting question. And and I really, I, I don't make, definitive uh, decisions in terms of chronology and that. By the way, I think the second week of January, I'm going to have a young earth creationist on maybe for a whole hour uh, to talk about a lot of these issues. So, so we'll cover some of those things from a biblical and geological and scientific point of view, as opposed to rabbinic point of view. And the second question. Yes. um, Thank you for giving me more time. 
Yeah. Um, so you give this explanation for the Trinity, which is that God can simultaneously sit enthroned in heaven. He can fill the universe with his glory. He can fill believers with his Holy Spirit. And at the same time, he can manifest or tabernacle his presence among us. Um, now, I accept that. I believe that the Bible teaches the deity of Christ, and therefore I accept the Trinity. But my question is, when I'm engaging with people, a thought that comes to my mind in this area is, couldn't a God who is in absolute unity, like a traditional Jew believes, do the same thing, in that this God is omnipresent, but he can still manifest his presence strongly in certain areas, such as the temple, but it doesn't require him to have a distinct personhood within the Godhead. Yes, certainly that that would be true. In in other words, a a Jew who believes in the absolute unity of God believes in the Holy Spirit as as a certain power of God, uh, believes in the Shekhinah, the manifest presence of God, as a certain aspect of God, um, so that theoretically, you know, he's sitting in throne. And traditional Jew thinks he's totally non-corporeal, so he's not literally sitting in heaven. He's not bodily. He doesn't have a a spiritual body of any kind. He's, He's pure spirit. In, in the, the Maimonidean Jewish conception. The problem would be, say, if we're looking at the language of the New Testament, where you have the mm-hmm. Father speaking to the Son, or the Son to the Spirit, or the Father sending the Spirit, and the Spirit bearing witness to the Son, or Jesus talking about the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the foundation of the earth, that obviously doesn't work from a New Testament perspective. And then from an Old Testament perspective, if the Messiah is divine, then, then you have two persons. Now, now, you, now you have a separation. So, uh, although theoretically some of this could happen with God's absolute unity, the full picture, even the full picture of rabbinic Judaism, and in mystical Judaism, points more to a complex unity, and that's why Benjamin Summer, who I quote, the the uh, professor at, at Jewish Theological Seminary, who wrote the book The Bodies of God, says the the whole idea of a Christian Trinity is is nothing unJewish about that very much in keeping with Jewish and biblical thought. So I, I would just push back in that way and try to show how rabbinic thought actually is, is not that different than what we're trying to emphasize. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Dr. Brown. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. Hey, Isaac, I just remember when you called as a, as a teenager, I believe, with a great question about the Exodus years ago, your voice was not quite as deep as today. So bless you on the journey, man. Keep bearing witness for the gospel. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Rebecca in Brooklyn. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Doctor. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure again. Um, I wanted to ask a question, um, and also a comment if I have time, but my question is regarding um, Judges eleven thirty verses 30 to 40, because um, I've always known, like, one of the things that Christianity, in regards to apologetics, we always said that our own distinction was that God never required required a human sacrifice compared Correct. to, like, um, the pagans and their barbaric practices and requiring a human sacrifice. And yeah. then I came across um, the story of Jephthah, or Jephthah and um, yep. how he made a vow to God and ended up sacrificing his own, like, a burnt sacrifice um, of his own daughter. So, of course, I, you know, I'm not trying to attack my own moral compass into the Word of God, of course not. But I just, I found it, like, kind of difficult to resolve with my initial understanding of that. So I just was wondering, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, it's, it's a troubling passage where Jephthah comes back from battle 
and makes a vow that the first thing that comes out of his tent, assuming it's going to be a chicken or a goat or a lamb or whatever, if the first thing that comes out of his tent, uh, he'll sacrifice to the Lord, and it's his daughter who comes out of the tent. And the, the plainest reading of the text would be that he sacrificed her. Some try to argue that she just had to be celibate the rest of her life, that she could never marry, and that's how it was lived out. To me, that's kind of wishful thinking. It would be nice if that were true, but it doesn't seem to be. So first thing is, Judges records Israel during a really messed up time, and even the good guys often are flawed, like Samson. So in point of fact, there is there's just a lot of bad stuff in Judges. And this is one of them. This is one of the bad accounts. There's not a hint that God required it, that God was pleased with it, that God rejoiced in it. It just, to me, it's a a picture of how horrific things were and how bad they were. And yet people understood universally, if you make a vow, you keep it. That's just the culture. You you don't break a vow. But since the Bible so categorically speaks against human sacrifice— first shouting it to us from the pages of Genesis 22 when when God, through the angel, tells Abraham, do not sacrifice Isaac. And then the many laws in the Torah about people who would sacrifice children and and burn their babies to Moloch. Moloch, the the horror of that in the book of Jeremiah in the 7th chapter and the 19th chapter, that being one of the key reasons why God judges Israel— uh, because of their sacrificing babies and things. So the Bible so categorically condemns this that if, in fact, Jephthah did this, it's just another indication of how messed up the time was and how fool, and, and even though he was a leader that was used to help Israel, he was anything but a paragon of godly virtue that you say, man, I want my kid to grow up and be just like Jephthah. So it's it's a ugly account. If there is a way out, if there's su- some subtle hint that that she was just given over to never marry and never have children, and that was that's how it was played out. That would be nice. I just don't see it plainly taught anywhere in the text. Okay, I see. So basically, it's the um, like like with Abraham, God is the one who told him to bring um, Isaac into the mountain, but not in order to like actually kill him. But in this case, just of his own. Exactly, he was the one who. Exactly. Totally. And it says that God did it to test him. God never intended for him to to do it. It was a test, and it was God's way of saying, no, no, I don't want this. I don't require it. And then, of course, a picture of a father willing to sacrifice his son, which then points to some wonderful gospel truths. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff recorded in the Bible that's negative, and it's it's recorded to be negative. In other words, yike, yuck, oh. And that's why it's there, and we, we learn from it uh, morally in, in the process. Hey, thank you for the call. Blessings to you in Brooklyn, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Ron in Canada. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. It's been Is, a while. All right. Our same friend, Ron, with, yep, your mom's been with the Lord many years, but the great 97-year-old Real Kosher Jesus testimony that I remember well. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was an incredible moment. And I don't know whether I told you, Dr. Brown, that when my mother passed, as my mother passed, I was actually reading your book to her. 
No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I guess I forgot to tell you that. I was actually what? reading your book in the room, in the nursing home room when my mother passed, when the Lord took her. Wow. You know, reading your book. I remember when you gave her the book and that she surprised you by saying, this is the, the validation I needed, I'm ready. And then after putting her faith in the Lord, that, that she would evangelize the others in the nursing home there. You're very moving and, un- and unforgettable testimony. But that last part, no, I didn't know. Hey, Ron, stay right there. Uh, we will come back on the other side of the break. But yeah, uh, one of the more beautiful, touching testimonies is Ron's 97-year-old mother came to faith, obviously prayed for her for many years, witnessed to by many, but God used the real kosher Jesus to touch her. I've run into, I've run into a bunch of people that have used that book to, to lead Jewish people to the Lord. The Lord is gracious. He's amazing. All right, we'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on the Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. You've got questions. We've got answers. All right, Ron in Canada, your question for us, sir. Right. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, yeah, um, going to Romans uh, chapter 11, 18 to 25, uh, see that, is, um, as I read it here, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, I'm really having a, a challenge with until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What exactly is the context there? What does that exactly mean, Dr. Brown? Well, from what, we, yeah, from what we understand from other scriptures is that uh, the harvest is the end of the age, that the outpouring of the Spirit will continue and intensify until the end of the age, that the Great Commission is to go and make disciples of the nations, that there will be uh, representatives of every people and tongue and tribe on the planet so that uh, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations, then the end will come. So... The fullness of the Gentiles would seem to be speaking of this vast harvest of, of Gentile souls being reached, not every person on the planet, but a great harvest, the fullness of the Gentiles, perhaps even the Gentile believers coming into the fullness of the Spirit as well. And that provoked by that, on the heels of that, the final turning of the Jewish people. So at any time, as Paul writes in Second Corinthians 3, that any Jewish person that turns to the Lord, the veil is removed at the same time we know that the final turning of the hearts of the <laughs> excuse me of the Jewish people happens on the heels of and provoked by this mass harvest of gentiles so it continues to accelerate more and more people coming to faith every day all around the world and at a certain point of crescendo that will reach its fullness and then the turning of Israel and the end of the world that's you know that's as i understand it so that comes before um, that comes before uh, the blindness is lifted. Yeah, on a national level. Yeah, on a <laughs> national words, level. Right, on a national level. Right, and it could well be that that's what it takes. In other words, the prayers of the church and the intercession of the church and the church, 
excuse me, being full of love for Israel and the Jewish people, that that's part of what God will use to remove that blindness and hardness. Amen. Okay. All right. God bless you. you. Thanks for the call, man. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to our friend Todd in Seagrove, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, I have a main question for you, and if possible, a, another one, if there's enough time. Uh, my main question is, um, in Genesis, uh, we read the account of Ishmael mocking at the feast that Abraham uh, threw for, after the weaning of Isaac. And my question is, like, what and how was Ishmael mocking? Yeah, so uh, that is a great question, except we don't have... <laughs> Excuse me. We don't have more information. Um, we we know it happened, but as with many questions that you've asked over the years, we have the same Bible that we're reading, and it doesn't give us extra information. You know, Isaac's being weaned. Is he mocking him because he's little? Is he? We don't know. The irony, though, is the same Hebrew uh, root for uh, for uh, laugh in another form can be used for mock. And so Isaac's name is a play on Isaac's name here that, that Ishmael is mocking him. But how exactly? We don't know because it's, all we have is what's written in, in the one chapter that addresses it. Okay. And the other question, actually you gave a good uh, lead-in to the question I'm going to ask. Uh, you mentioned about in a couple of weeks having a young earth creationist on your program. Uh, is that Dr. Kent Hovind? Uh, yes, it is, actually. Yep, it is. I was worried about that because I, I was one that, and I'm not bragging on myself, so I don't want you to get the wrong idea, but I was one that made the initial contact between uh, both of your ministries to get him on because, just like I said, he was the one that really, uh, what you might say, turned me on to the uh, creation-evolution debate because, you know, before I was saved and shortly after, I really didn't have an opinion, you know, either way about it, but uh, with hearing him on um, a radio program back in 96, um, it just it just really opened up my eyes to the whole debate and everything. So I'm, yeah, well, I'm, he I'm had real. when we lived. Yeah, well, Todd, I'm glad that you reached out and made those efforts. We had his son on the air some years ago, but Kent and I knew each other uh, during the Brownsville revival in Pensacola, Florida. We got to know oh, each okay. other. He he had a his you know creation museum there and things like that. And uh, I have to say this: every so often we run each run into each other on the plane because we're flying out all the time. But anytime I saw him, he was witnessing to somebody, to his credit. Then he ended up going to jail and there was alleged tax fraud. On his end, he was holding to his convictions, not to do things that would violate his convictions before the government. So I'm going to ask him about that when he comes on because people have heard different reports. But yeah, Kent uh, was supposed to be on with us. I had an error on our end. And then I said, we'll come back another day and we'll do a whole hour together. So it's going to be, I think, the second week of January. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Diego in Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. I recently read your book, um, Our Hands Begin With Blood, and uh, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, and I want to thank you for that. All right. Hey, 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 Diego, hang on one second. Um, Danny, could you just see what's up with his phone? Because it's really hard to understand. So if you just check in. Uh, with Diego, and let's let's get a better phone connection there. 
whether you're not talking directly into the phone. So I'm going to go to another call, and then we'll go back to 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 Diego in a moment. All right, uh, Cassandra in Carbondale, Illinois. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. Good. Um, my question is in regards to I heard your broadcast the other day talking about how um, you know we need to make sure we're standing on the gospel before we're standing on government or politics, and I think that that's great. My question is, where is the balance between um, trying to advocate government help to push biblical principles? Like, obviously, in the fight for life, we want you know to rid anything of abortion in our government, but then you've got other things like. Um, there is a big debate right now whether or not government should be um, intervening in uh, pornography and whether we should outlaw that. Where does it hurt us more than it helps us, and where does it help us more than it hurts us, if that makes sense? Yeah, see, in a country like ours, where we can advocate, it's it's different than, say, if you're in communist China or in, mm-hmm. in ancient Rome, where you have less ability to advocate, but we have a lot of ability. We can we can influence the culture a lot for better or for worse, and, mm-hmm. and we can do it legally. Uh, so what we have to do, again, is priorities, right? Realize that the biggest thing is living godly lives. The biggest thing is, is getting people to know the Lord. The biggest thing is changing the culture through the gospel, through people being transformed and living differently. At the same time, we have laws against murder. We have laws against speeding. We have laws against uh, human trafficking. I mean, there are many laws we have that are very important because they save lives. So we just have to make sure that our passion and priorities are in the right place and that that's what we're primarily known for. And then we have to be able to advocate our position. In other words, if we're going to advocate for the blocking of certain pornographic sites and whether that's right or not, or the freedoms that the fathers intended, did they ever dream that it would be every type of sexual perversion available to anyone online, you know, that there would be such a concept? What we have to be able to do is adequately articulate our position to those who differ. In other words, explain rationally why we think this is a good thing. You know, the pro-life movement has made a lot of progress through ultrasounds, through finding out more about babies and and living outside of the womb, and then showing some of the horrors of what Planned Parenthood's done with baby parts and things like that. So you want to make that appeal, just like the Unplanned movie seeks to make that appeal in a certain way. So if we're just hammering, you know, that, that, that we are just, we're going to hammer and we're going to force our way and we're going to legislate this and we're going to, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't, and we're going to pass laws for it. First, it's not going to do any good as we found out in the prohibition era. It's not going to do good just to make everything illegal. People are going to do things secretly, but they're ultimately just going to wait for that moment to rebel and push back. But if you can change hearts and minds and then in the process get good laws passed, that's the best thing. So put up, do your best to put up a law of restraint to stop the onslaught of evil, right? So, I mean, murder, wrong, period. We understand that if we get abortion uh, uh, out of uh, any legal standing in America, wonderful. But the biggest thing is be working to change hearts, present our position rationally. To me, it's both and, and, and the key thing is priorities, in what we do. And as believers in America, it's so easy to put the emphasis on legislation and voting. 
as opposed to the spiritual battle, which is harder to fight. So fight the spiritual battle first, and then on the heels of that, on the strength of that, do the other things. And some are going to be called, some are going to be called more to private prayer and some more to public advocacy. Let them work together hand in hand. Hey, thank you for the call. 866. And, and I realize there are larger issues, the role of government, things like that. How much say should government have? These are other fair questions. All right. Uh, Diego, back to you. What's on your mind? Hello, Dr. Brown. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Great. So, yeah, so my question surrounds uh, 1 Corinthians 5. It speaks about uh, delivering individual up to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Yeah. And uh, uh, my question is, uh, I've heard uh, various theories about this. One of them is um, this person was saved, and this was God taking him out of the world. The other theory I've heard it was that this man was, quote-unquote, unsaved or, quote-unquote, lost his salvation, and the destruction of the flesh was meant to get him back on track. So I wanted to um, get your take on that, Dr. Brown. Yeah, I believe that it's speaking of someone who's in the Lord but walking in serious disobedience. And if they continue in that serious disobedience, they could forfeit their very salvation. In other words, salvation is not something that you just lose one day or it just slips out of your pocket It is a conscious rejection of Jesus as Lord, a conscious refusal to live under him. So if this man continued in that way, then his spirit would be lost on that day. So this is saying, let him be given over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So the enemy now will physically destroy him. That's going to be the end of his relationship with his father's wife. And the hope is that in that state of brokenness, and in that state of destruction, that he'll cry out for salvation. So his body may die, but his spirit be saved. So that's the goal, because he's in a precarious state. That's how I'd understand it, kind of in between the two things you presented. Thank you, sir, for the call. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us. 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions. We've got answers. Hey, as we come to the end of the year, if we've been a blessing to you and a help to you, would you stand with us? Would you help with a one-time year-end tax-deductible gift? We know that Many of you pray at the end of the year about giving special gifts because they're tax deductible and it's just a great advantage we have here in America. But regardless of tax deductible or not, I believe that we're worthy of your support. I believe that we help and equip many and reach many who don't know the Lord as well. And we serve by God's grace as your voice of moral, cultural, spiritual revolution. If we've been a blessing to you, maybe you can help with $5, maybe $50, maybe $5,000. But if you can help, Go to our website now, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Click on Donate and be assured that every dime is used to advance the very causes that we advocate here on the air. That's where the money goes. All right, to the phones in Kansas. Sarah, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, thanks for getting to my call. Sure. I, uh, I have a couple questions if I can ask both of them. If there's not enough time, that's fine. But my first one is, in your book, Jezebel's War with America, I just got it, and I absolutely love it. I bought it today, and I'm already on, like, page 80. 
Um, right. But right. I was wondering, you talked about a man who prophesied that Donald Trump was going to be under attack and that witches were coming against him. But my question was, um, how did he get attacked? Like, what happened during that? Well, it's it's uh, really interesting. So that was my friend, Pastor John Kilpatrick, on a Sunday. It doesn't mean that the president is perfect or that that anyone against him is of the devil. It just means that, that Pastor Kilpatrick felt that there was a real demonic attack about to come against President Jezebel, uh, witchcraft. And that's what, that's what prompted me and got me in this whole flow. And then God spoke to me to write the book. Uh, but uh, it, it was on a Sunday. That Tuesday, and I have to think back to the details, but it's, it's all over the news. If you go back to August of, of 2018, the thing exploded. It was like a hell week. And that's what drew more attention to the prayer. It's like, whoa, talk about something relevant. So I, I have to be honest and say I forget the nature of the attack. In my mind, it happened Monday. Then a friend said, no, it was Tuesday. But it was, here's the prayer on a Sunday afternoon. And within a day or two, boom, this crazy, <laughs> excuse me, this crazy attack. But um, if, if uh, let's just see the date of the prayer here. Uh, so let's just type it in. John Kilpatrick. Uh, prayer, uh, anyway, John Kilpatrick, prayer, Trump. Let's see what comes up. It should be yeah, Witchcraft in YouTube, August 20th. Was that it? August 20th of, of um, yeah, August 22nd, it's being reported. But it's that, it's that week. It's the week that'll be right after that in, in uh, 2018. Uh, yeah, and, and the whole prayer headline on Drudge Report and all that. So check the news cycle that week, and, and you'll see it. There's okay. big stuff that happens. It's like a hell week for the president. Yeah. Okay, yeah, sounds good. I have to look into it. And do you have time for my second question? Yeah, go for it. Go ahead. Okay, so my second question is, what would you suggest for me and my husband? Um, we're very stagnant in our relationship with Christ, and we're really distracted, and I just feel really far from him and less interested in doing um, devotions and being in the word. And I'm wondering what would you suggest like practically and would you also pray for us? Yeah, sure. Well, first thing is recognizing the issue. And sometimes you have to just make a determined effort, even though things seem boring and stagnant, we're going to get with God. You may do best together you may do best alone. In other words, it may be, all right, honey, can we just clear the schedule Thursday night or Saturday day? I just want to lock myself in a room with the Bible and worship music and God, and I'm going to stay there until I get a breakthrough. Uh, Or it may be something that you do together. But Jesus says in Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus that it left its first love, is that do the things you did at first. Do them again. So sometimes just like a date night with a couple that's drifting apart, that you make the conscious determination we're going to get with God, you may need to do things differently and say, okay, what can we consciously do to really encounter him and get in his presence? That's, that's one thing. So worship is a big part of that, kind of changing up the way you do things, but saying, God, we're going to pursue you. And we're going to go after you because he says, if you seek me, you find me. That's one thing. The other thing is I would expose myself to testimonies of God moving, stories, revival in the past, uh, things that stir your heart, testimony of God moving today, 
or or watch videos where where the Holy Spirit's moving and people are being touched so that uh, if if it's kind of dry where you are, get out where it's raining. And if you get out where it's raining, you'll get wet yourself. Uh, so those are a couple of things I'd suggest, but uh, but let me pray for you, all right? Uh, Lord, I pray for Sarah and her husband. Light a fresh fire in them, Lord. Ignite them as they seek you. You said it in your word, draw near to me, and I'll draw near you. As they draw near to you, may they be ignited with holy, transforming fire. And may a passion for you and your word and the lost, may this rise up in them like never before. May the hunger turn to desperation. And may that desperation lead to divine encounter. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Sarah. Hey, when you finish Jezebel's War with America, post a review on Amazon, regardless of where you got it. Let others know. I was moved on so supernaturally to write it, it seems people read it with that same fervor. So glad to hear that. And trust the Lord is going to meet you. All right, let's go to Leanne in St. Louis. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for taking my call. And I also wanted to say thank you for just living out a, a godly example of how to answer people in truth and love. Uh, that's been difficult for me to do both of those at the same time, but uh, thank you for the example you set. Um, my question is, in Second Peter 2, 10 and 11, and also in Jude 1, 9, it talks about celestial beings. And uh, it says that not even the angels bring a slanderous accusation against them. So I wanted to know, who are the celestial beings? And some versions say the glorious ones, because the passage does um, show them in opposition to angels. And then also, what would it look like to bring a slanderous accusation against them? And if there's time, I have a follow-up question for one of your previous callers. Yeah, uh, but first, thank, thank you for the kind words. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it, it's talking about angels. Remember, Satan is a fallen angel, right? So, so it's saying that that uh, that there are there are people just in their ignorance, professing Christians who are so ignorant they'll just say all kinds of slanderous things against celestial beings. Clearly, talking about God's angels there, and then God's angels though don't bring slanderous accusations even against Satan. In other words, they don't just like, you jerk, you idiot, you foul mouth, but, 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 you know, we're going to take you down. But, you know, that's not the way they do it. They say, the Lord rebuke you. So there's a certain power and authority that these angelic beings carry that, that those that are foolish and ignorant will just speak wildly against them. And that these angelic beings themselves are even careful in the way they address those on the other side. They they will use the Lord's authority to rebuke rather than the, you know, the being nasty or or something like that because of recognizing the 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 powers that they're dealing with. Okay, great. Um, and then the follow up question for one of your previous callers, the young lady had called asking about Jephthah and his oath um, because God clearly doesn't want human sacrifice. Should Jephthah have thought? A way out of the out of his oath. If, if I was Jephthah, I sure would have. I <laughs> trust me on on every on every level. You better believe I would have. I blew it. I'm sorry. I'm I I broke a you know I made a punish me for breaking a vow. That's what I was said. Okay. Punish me for and then God, I made a foolish vow. Right. So thank you. Right. I appreciate that. All right. Yeah. Hey Matt. Awesome work here. So John Kilpatrick calls for prayer. Uh, for for Donald Trump on a Sunday, okay? What is it, Sunday, August 20th? All right? Newsweek headline, August 21st, Trump Hell Hour. Drudge Report reacts to Michael Cohen guilty plea 
Paul Manafort verdict. And then the next day, uh, Donald Trump's really bad week continues. But here, here is a pastor saying we need to pray for the president. He's going to come under heavy attack. And then within 48 hours, less, less than that, right? Uh, within 48 hours, uh, uh, it's like all hell breaks loose against him, and they're calling it Hell Week. It's like, okay, I think he was onto something in that prayer. Hey, Steve, see your comment there. Thank you. Much appreciated. All right, really quickly, Scott, also in St. Louis. What's your question, sir? Yeah, challenging question for today. <clears throat> I, I, I would say this in similarity. I went up to Canada and said, hey, you guys don't have to celebrate Thanksgiving anymore, they'd be like, what are you talking about? My question is, why is Paul going to the average Gentiles telling them you're free from the law when they probably have no idea what he's talking about? Ah, well, it's quite the contrary. They know exactly what he's talking about. In other words, when he's going to the Galatians and telling them that, it's because Jewish believers have come and told them that that you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. Yeah, so they're they're making a, a a big fuss about it, and the Galatians are being deceived. And some of the Gentiles first heard the gospel in the synagogues. They were God fearing; they knew all about the God of Israel. Average Gentiles, they lived near Jews; they knew about Jewish law. Well, now this is the message about the Jewish Messiah. So, do we have to keep the Jewish law too? It makes sense, right? Jewish Messiah, Jewish community, Jewish law. No, no, no. You don't have to. So that's the message. Anyway, God bless, man. Have an awesome weekend. Friends, back with you on Monday. Make sure you check out our latest videos and articles at AskDrBrown.org.